Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org slash learn. Today on Maine Calling, NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins. It's awards season for Hollywood. We've already learned the winners of the Golden Globes and the Emmys. Then this morning, Oscar nominations came out. What do you think of the winners and nominees? What are you watching on TV these days? I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, NPR's Eric Deggins returns to talk about what we're watching right now on the large and small screen, why, and what it says about us. We'll discuss comedy, sci-fi, and dramas, of course, but also sports and coverage of the presidential election. It is primary day in New Hampshire, after all. Are your viewing habits changing? What do you expect from television today? Maine Calling is just ahead. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Were you surprised that Succession was the big winner at last week's Emmy Awards or that The Bear is somehow classified as a comedy? And how about some big surprise snubs in today's Oscar nominations? Today, my guest is NPR's TV critic, Eric Deggins. He will be sharing his thoughts on all of that and more. He's also a media analyst, guest host, journalist, and author. Eric, welcome back to Maine Calling. Yeah, thanks for having me. So glad to be here. We're thrilled to have you. We invite the rest of you in the audience to join the conversation. Tell us what TV shows you've been enjoying, what you think is overrated. Tell us what you'd like to see more of a television or less of. Send an email, a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Eric, I know that you're the TV critic. But we have to talk about the Oscar nominations that just came out this morning. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are just gobsmacked that Greta Gerwig was not nominated as Best Director for Barbie and Margot Robbie was not nominated for Best Actress. And um, this is kind of beyond ironic. Yeah, because the actor who played Ken, Ryan Gosling, did get nominated. <laughs> um, Unbelievable. But, well, you know, I'll, I'll provide all the caveats that, I, you know, anybody who's connected with the Oscars would probably provide, which is that, number one, the film did get a bunch of nominations. I think it got eight total, um, and, including uh, Ryan Gosling and America Fer Ferrara. Um, and the sense is that comedies have a harder time uh, getting what are considered the most important nominations uh, and that perhaps... Um, you know, one reason why Greta Gerwig and, and Margaret Robbie were overlooked was because, um, you know, Barbie is a comedy. Um, now, of course, that didn't explain why America Ferreira and Ryan Gosling got nominated, but but that's one thing that people um, are saying. The other thing is that uh, Greta Gerwig, this is unfortunately not a new thing for her. Her her film, uh, Little Women, was nominated six times for Oscars for the, in uh, 2020, and she was not nominated for Best Director then either. And so it's 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 kind of hard. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, directors vote for directors. So maybe there's a sense that the P, that the directors who vote for the Oscars for some reason uh, don't value her work as much as they do other people's. Um, but of course, a lot of people are concerned that this feels like a reflection of the sexism that's criticized in the Barbie movie itself. And uh, and and I was really surprised. I mean, it, it did seem like a year. I mean, Barbie. You know, uh, I think it made the most money of any movie last year. Um, and it was part of that, uh, you know, pairing with Oppenheimer that seemed to rescue movie theaters at a time when 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 people weren't going to the theaters as much. And it was also creatively considered a triumph. A lot of people liked the way the film talked about sexism and talked about a woman finding her independence and her inner voice. 
And so to, 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 to get to the end of all of that and then say, oh, well, you weren't quite good enough to make Best Director and you weren't quite good enough to make Best Actress, that's going to have people scratch it. I, I sense the coming of a thousand think pieces <laughs> over, Wait. <laughs> over why this happened between now and when the Oscars air in March. Yeah, I, I really, um, you know, I, I don't see many interpretations, though. Yeah, I, I think that we're, we're, we're being really um, avoiding sexism as a potential reason would be fraud, I think. I mean, the other thing I was thinking about, Eric, is that it it was so wildly imaginative. You can't say, oh, Barbie is like fill in the blank. It's unlike anything else. And it was um, the other movies. I haven't seen all of them, but many of them you could say, well, it was like this and this and this and this. It, you know, I, I, I would argue that of the big movies, Barbie was the most imaginative, the most creative, the most different. Um, have you seen Poor Things? No, I haven't seen <laughs> that one yet. yeah, okay, that's, yeah, Poor Things is probably the, the I would say, just the, in terms of being wildly creative and, 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 and breaking all kinds of boundaries and being a kind of movie that you can't compare to anything else. Uh, you know, Poor Things is also in that category. But, but Barbie was, was all those things and it was popular. Uh, and, and, and so I, I agree, I, you know, th this, is a head scratcher, but when you have thousands of people voting on, uh, uh, you know, directors vote on directors, but every everybody votes on best picture. It's in there. Um, it you know it it is hard to to understand the thinking that might have led actors to exclude Margot Robbie, or directors to exclude Greta Gerwig, and I'm sure the people um, who organize the Oscars are probably uh, not necessarily happy because. Um, so many other they they had so many other firsts. You know, Lily Gladstone uh, got nominated and became the first Native American. I think she's the first Native American to be nominated in a major acting category in the Oscars. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese, um, you know, uh, got a record number of no nominations as director. Steven Spielberg um, has gotten um, a record number of nominations as a producer. Um, Coleman Domingo and Jeffrey Wright, two African-American men, nominated for Best Actor at the same time, which uh, I didn't think would happen, and a lot of people didn't think would happen. So there were, there were a lot of wonderful nominations, and they're all being overshadowed by the fact that the biggest ones, they kind of whiffed. So, you know, here we are. Uh, welcome to 2024, I guess. All right. Well, let's talk about television, your specialty. Um, you come out with the Deggies uh, before the Emmys every year, which are super fun and break <laughs> some rules. I'm sure. guessing, though, reading what you had nominated for the Deggies and then seeing what um, actually won Emmys, you were pleasantly surprised. I was. Well, I mean, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer. I did give Deggies to uh, Succession and to the Bay Area's Best Drama and Comedy, and they won in those categories. Uh, but I was telling you before we started this broadcast that if I had really been thinking about challenging the norms of the Emmys, I should have had uh, Succession win a Best Comedy Emmy and the Bears win, or, or Best Comedy Deggy, and the Bear win Best Drama in the Deggies because to my mind, the Bear is a, is a drama and Succession is a comedy. Um, a, a really dark comedy. But the things that are entertaining, the things that's entertaining about Succession uh, are a lot of very dry humor, a lot a lot of absurdist humor that goes on. Those, those are the things that really kind of uh, add spice to the show and are kind of at the heart of what it does. And, and the bear, you know, all of its electric moments are intensely dramatic. And, and so, um, it, you know, those... Shows are nominated in the categories that they were nominated in, I think, in part uh, as calculation, um, you know, a, a sense that uh, Succession would do better as the drama and that uh, Bear would do better in the in the comedic categories. And the Emmys, see, uh, recently at least, seem hesitant to challenge a studio or, um, you know, uh, the, the producer of a show. when they say it's a comedy, even though it didn't seem like it's a comedy. Now, you know, back in the day, um, they did force uh, Orange is the New Black uh, out of the comedy categories uh, to compete as a drama. So I wonder if that's not in the Bears' future, if, if there aren't going to be some people who will challenge um, its nomination as a, as a, as a drama. 
or as a comedy, I'm sorry. Um, but right now, you know, you know, we had what we had and it turned out, I mean, I thought the Emmys turned out pretty good. Uh, all the winners, while they were predictable, also seemed very uh, appropriate. Uh, although you could fault, I think, the Emmy voters for not casting a wider net and considering um, winners outside of the shows that dominated their categories, which was Succession, The Bear, and Beef in limited series. What, what do you think these shows, Succession, The Bear, Beef, and others that were award winners, others that are popular right now, say about sort of the zeitgeist of our times? Um, well, Succession... I think worked because on the on one level it was this uh portrait of an of a deeply dysfunctional family but on another level it was a portrait of all these dysfunctional systems that surround us uh from our media structure to our political structure um to the way wealth works in America and uh, all that stuff was in the background but what was in the foreground were these deeply dysfunctional people with a lot of power bouncing off of each other and doing terrible things in the process to themselves and the people around them. And, 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 you know, if there's anything that sort of sums up the tenor of our times, the tension between personal dysfunction and social dysfunction feels like that. Um, with the bear, you also have um, a, a kind of a deeply dysfunctional family at the heart of that story. You know, it's about uh, a gourmet chef, who was being trained in New York when his brother dies, his brother kills himself. And he and his brother had been running the family's uh, Greasy Spoon restaurant in Chicago. So he comes back to take it over and tries to upgrade it by bringing all the techniques and sensibilities he learned as a gourmet chef. And he finds how difficult that is. And it also forces him on another level to face um, the dysfunction of his family and why his brother turned out the way he did and why he turned out the way he did. And, and, and in particular in the show's second season, which technically was not, um, that didn't win the Emmy technically, the first season was what they were judging. Uh, but, you know, Emmy voters were watching the second season probably as they were voting. And, and, and the show really delved into um, the, why the lead character, Carmi Brazado turned out the way he did and how his mom in particular may have affected him. And then on the other hand, he had this found family, these this family of workers, and they each were trying to find their way during that second season. And there was a lot of wonderful um, stories there. Um, with Beef, we had this blood, we had this incident of road rage turn into a blood feud that turned into a story about all kinds of things, everything from Asian family culture to uh, forgiveness and anger. And, frust and, and frustration at not living up to whatever you think your potential is or uh, having to let go of whatever your dreams were for yourself. Um, these are all things, again, that people are going through and can relate to, especially people who are drawn to watch that kind of high quality TV that these shows represent. So that, again, that tension between uh, a personal family dynamic and a larger social issue is what all three of those shows have in common. Mm. And I'm wondering, too, at least with Succession and then popular shows like White Lotus, um, it seems as though these are shows about horrible people. What, what is it about the trend or shows about just horrible people where not a single character is someone that um, in the end has redeeming qualities? Well, it's not just that they're horrible people. They are horrible, wealthy people. And so uh, I think uh, the juice for both of those shows is the idea that you're getting a peek at how the 1% lives. And it turns out that even with all their money and power, they are tortured, terrible people. And 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 I think there's some attraction to, to that story. Um, White Lotus, you know, I, I'm one of the few critics who doesn't really like that show. Uh, and And I don't like it in part because um, I feel it's 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 marginalized characters of color because it's focused on wealthy people. Um, but I also feel like it it pretends to be critical of wealth when it really admires wealth. And 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 it and it pretends to be showing us these awful people who are wealthy, but it also um salivates and savors the trappings of their wealth. And the up the 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 ultimate message of the show, particularly in the first season, was these wealthy people may be terrible but they're always going to win and you might as well just accept it. And, and, and frankly, I don't have time for a show that has that kind of message at its heart. 
Uh, I, I don't I don't care how beautiful the setting is or how wonderful the dialogue is. When when the message at the heart of it is is something like that, I, I can't be down with it. You know, Eric, we're talking about a lot of shows that are on streaming services, and uh, let's face it, pretty much everybody watches television differently than they used to, and uh, isn't it quaint to think about um, back when we thought cable was um, a dramatic change from having three or four channels, and I'm wondering, <laughs> right. yeah, and I'm wondering um, if, if I know that you're, you've been doing some work thinking about uh, how we all strategize how we watch TV and tell me about the project you're working on and, and what you've learned about your own viewing habits and your own um, television um, menu. Sure, sure. So um, back in 2019, I did uh, a, a big story for our website, npr.org, where I talked about how to choose a streaming service or how to choose uh, the streaming services that would be a part of your life. And at that time, uh, Apple TV Plus was just debuting and Disney Plus was just debuting. Um, they had introductory, uh, you know, subscription fees that were very low. And it seemed, uh, you know, uh, Max, uh, HBO Max, which would become Max, hadn't even debuted yet. Peacock hadn't debuted yet. Um, uh, there were a, a bunch of major streaming services that were either, um, you know, much less evolved or hadn't debuted yet. And so it just occurred to me that, you know, four years later, it, it, it's it's time to update that and give people new tools for how to sort through all of this. So we have a story that's going to be dropping on NPR.org. Right now, we're planning it for Monday. Um, but of course, we might, you know, depending on um, how the we're just editing things now and getting things ready right now, the hope is that it would run on Monday. And um, what I've always focused on is giving people a strategy for how to figure out what streaming services they might want. I can't recommend, I can't provide a blanket recommendation that would work for everyone or even most people. But what I can say is here's how you think about it. Um, you know, uh, I, one of the things I say is, you know, try to put together a TV diary, just pay attention to what you're watching now for a week or even a month and where those programs can be found. Uh, once you have a sense of what programs you value the most, you can do a little research and find out where you can access those programs cheapest. Um, ask yourself, uh, do you mind watching commercials or not? If you don't mind watching commercials, then it might be better for you to access the programs that you love through what we call um, a free ad-supported television um, platform. FAST is the acronym. And this, uh, you know, there's a, Amazon has one called Amazon Freebie. And you can go to the app or you can go to the website and you can watch movies and TV shows on demand that have commercials in them. Or you can uh, go to a channel where they're playing a bunch of episodes of Say Yes to the Dress or they're playing a bunch of episodes of, you know, another uh, show that you might like. And, and there's commercials embedded, but it's all free. You know, you don't have to pay anything. Um, so, so you know, just little tips like that to help you organize your TV viewing. So you're paying as little as possible. You're getting as much TV as possible. And you're getting to see all the shows that you really uh, value and you, and you, and you want to enjoy. Well, we haven't even talked about sports yet. We haven't even talked about the fact that it's an election year, but we are speaking with Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic. Um, Eric, I can't wait to look at what you all come out with in a week or so about um, figuring out a, a streaming service strategy. And of course, everybody wants to be on the PBS Passport app. If you have a question or a comment for Eric Deggins, our email address, talk at mainpublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram or Give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. Listener support brings us Maine Calling with help from the Lunder Foundation in support of the Colby College Museum of Art. We're bringing the museum to you online at colby.edu slash museum and by Wilson County Barbecue, celebrating pit-smoked whole hog barbecue done the old-fashioned way in Portland. WilsonCountyBarbecue.com. On Open to Debate, we take a break from civil discourse to discuss the nature of military conflict. The Russian invasion is uh, is wildly out of all proportion. The Russians have ripped up the rule book completely. Join us for a conversation with General David Petraeus and Lord Andrew Roberts on their new book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. That's this week on Open to Debate. 
And you can hear that broadcast this afternoon at 2 p.m. here on Maine Public Radio. Maine high school students, we'd like to hear from you. This winter, we're seeking submissions from students across the state for our new multimedia challenge, Future Driven, a youth climate story is an opportunity for you to showcase your creativity and skill in any medium, audio, visual, written, and more. The topic is climate change in Maine. The deadline is February 23rd. For complete details on our Future Driven Challenge, please visit mainepublic.org and click on Community. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. With me today, NPR TV critic Eric Degen. Share your comments and questions. What are your favorite shows? What do you want to talk about? What would you like to see more of on television? Send an email to talk at mainepublic.org. Comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Um, this past weekend, Eric, was a big weekend for football. And from what I'm reading really good ratings which is interesting to me because i think that football has been sort of on this little bit of a roller coaster ride in the american psyche with the uh, problems with uh, cte and concussions and um but you know americans still love their football i'm reading something right here that the chiefs bills game had 50.4 million viewers which set a record um any thoughts about this uh where where the role that that sports, live sports, and especially football plays in television today? Well, um, you know, live sports remains one of the few areas where broadcasting cable can still compete with streaming. And um, football is the ultimate live sport. It's the most popular live sport. Um, football uh, broadcast, you know, NBC Sunday Night Football, is consistently the most watched program uh, on broadcast year after year after year after year. It's been that way for a long time. And consistently the most watched episodes of television in the last, I don't know, 10 years have all been Super Bowls. So, uh, so you know, America's love affair with, with football has been consistent and long and has only been slightly hobbled by people saying, hey, um, maybe it's not all that great um, towards people of color. Uh, and hey, maybe um, people are getting irreparably physically damaged in playing it. Um, you know, Americans are really good at ignoring things like that when we want to. So, um, you know, and, and to have, you know, in an odd way, you know, Taylor Swift, who is, you know, one of the most powerful brands in entertainment, become aligned with the most powerful brand in sports by, uh, you know, dating Travis Kelsey and going to his games and then the the cameras focus on her. Um, the, the, the sliver of the population that wasn't interested in football has now become more interested in football because their hero, Taylor Swift, is deeply involved with a, uh, one of the biggest stars in the sport right now. So you have this collision of power, powerful brands. And I hate to put it that way because there's a there's a human couple at the center of that. And I certainly hope that their, roman that their romance is able to proceed with a minimum of interference from the rest of us knuckleheads looking at them. But, um, but there is this sense that all these brands have kind of come together um, to... to um, become a part of, you know, the most popular event in American pop culture, which is championship football games. And, and it's all, you know, it's, it's always been that way, but now it's even more important because there are so many fewer other moments that really matter in that way. You know, uh, the Oscars used to matter in that way, but people don't watch it as much because, um, you know, people are less interested in award shows and because the films that get nominated I mean, you know, we just talked about the the highest grossing film of last year, the director and the lead actress didn't get nominated, <laughs> you know, that, and, and that happens, you know, that often happens. They had 10 Best Picture nominees uh, and outside of Oppenheimer and Barbie, I'm not sure um, that that uh, many got nominated that made major amounts of money. So um, we're, you know other things, Oscars and the State of the Union and things that used to be these major moments on television, people are falling away from them. They're getting less uh, attention. And that just makes what football accomplishes and the Super Bowl in particular 
stand out even more and people grow more attached to it because it's, it's one of the few events that you know most of your friends will know about and will it, they may not eat, watch it, but they will have heard about it and you can talk about it together and you can share in a way that very few TV events allow you to do anymore. Well, speaking of, it's 2024, and that means that it's a, an Olympic year. And, um, you know, Eric, I used to be one of those people who watched the Olympics all day, every day when it was on <laughs> and, and looked forward to it and couldn't wait, cleared my schedule. And and I'll watch this summer and there, you know, of course, I want to watch Simone Biles. And of course, I want to watch swimming because I used to be a swimmer. But right. I... I, I think it's lost some of my magic and is it because of how it's covered or is it because of what we know about sports is it because we're cynical now or or is it just me uh it's it, i think in a way it's all those things um there are more things sort of competing for our attention now and i think more of us realize that some of the jingoism of past olympics um wasn't appropriate And um, and we're more careful about indulging in that now. Um, but I think the I always main hated thing is, that. I always hated the jingoism, yeah, and I, I just I hated the metal yeah. count. I just wanted to watch the athletes. But go on, sorry it, to interrupt. exactly. Um, but but I think I think the main thing is just that there's there's more things to consume our attention, and I also think because you you can experience the Olympics in a much more granular way now. If you're if you're really interested in just a few sports. You don't have to watch all of ABC's coverage, you know, to, to see what you want to see. And I'm saying ABC because back in the day they they covered it, but NBC has it now. Um, but but you don't you don't have to watch a ton of coverage to see the events that you want to see. You can go on to Peacock or you there's you know there's other apps where you can access just the part of the Olympics that you're interested in. And you know if you're willing to stay off social media. Um, or not watch news reports, you can watch it whenever you want. Uh, so I think that's some of it too. We're not all forced to consume the Olympics in the same way. And so that breaks down that communal thing that I was talking about with football, because a football game happens when it happens. And, you know, if, if you want to experience that, you kind of have to watch it when it's happening. The Olympics, because of time differences and because there's so many events going on and because it's it's covered in such a granular way by media now, you can experience that in, in a much different way than your friend can or than the, the person you work with at, um, you know, at your job. You're still you're all still paying attention to the Olympics, but you're all paying attention to it in different ways and you don't necessarily connect over that. And I, and I think that's, you know, the biggest thing that's happening Um, in, in a way, it's better for the individual consumer because you're not wasting your time watching the stuff you don't care about and you get to really focus on the sports that you find most compelling. But it does ruin that sense of everybody's watching, everybody's worried about how American uh, uh, athletes will do. You know, everybody's tuned into the same moment. So when an athlete really excels, everyone knows uh, that all of that is diminished now. An email here from Gene, TV critic Tom Shales recently died. What are your reflections on his work and legacy? Yeah, Tom uh, was a brilliant writer and a brilliant thinker about television. Um, but he was also kind of an eccentric guy. And, you know, I, I, my connection with him was that we used to trade messages on Facebook. But, like, he's one of the major TV critics where... You know, he he didn't he didn't show up at places where a lot of us did. And, you know, he wasn't necessarily the most um, the, the guy who would reach out and have a beer with you or whatever, hang out. So it was hard to get to know him and it was hard to um, to fully understand him for that reason. But his work was so amazing. And, you know, what what a lot of people said about him is that he was one of the first critics to really champion television as a serious medium again you know it's hard for younger people or people um, who haven't paid attention to the history of this uh, thing to understand how um, bad television was 30 years ago and how um, how unserious people took most television 30 or 40 years ago 
And, and um, you know, Shales was a brilliant writer who also came along at a time when TV was trying to get more serious. And you had shows like Hill Street Blues and um, um, uh, Homicide Life on the Street. And, um, you know, you, you had these seminal shows, you know, MASH a little earlier that were trying to be serious, that were trying to say serious things. within a medium that was con often considered silly and kind of negligible. And, and, and he had a lot of smart things to say about that. And, and, and I think that's, that's what made him uh, such a great uh, critic. Eric, you're talking about TV 30 years ago, um, and at my family conversation, somehow something came up this year that this week that sort of illustrates your point. My husband and I were telling our kids about Mr. Ed. <laughs> somehow <laughs> no, the no, theme no. song to Mr. Ed came out of the blue. And um, yeah, Yeah, so his it's name a, is Mr. Ed. T TV is different now. Um, I'm going to read Catherine on Facebook. I'm so tired of the popular and critical winners being the shows that turn nastiness, cruelty, greed, and narcissism into fun and harmless virtues. As our culture slides into a reflection of the worlds depicted by those shows, I look to media as the teaching tool spreading this kind of behavior and standard of life philosophy. Let's see shows that depict ways out of this kind of American personality and the problems it causes in relationships and politics. Well, that's an interesting commentary, but I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that a show like Succession is saying that all those negative things are to be celebrated or that they help you achieve something. Uh, if anything, the message of Succession is that being like that um, leaves you empty and unfulfilled no matter how much success is in your life, no matter how much money is at your disposal. because you can never be sure if your family loves you uh, and you are often pushed to betray those uh, who care the most about you. And so um, I think, I think what, you know, shows like the bear and succession and even the white Lotus are trying to grapple with is this, is what it means to, to try to be a, a fulfilled centered complete person in a world that, makes that very, very difficult. And that sometimes the way you were raised and how your parents treated you and the environment that you came up in have, have a lot to do with how you how you struggle with those things. And, you know, the, the three um, siblings at the heart of succession, the reason why they're so terrible is because they were raised by a narcissist who constantly pitted them against each other. Um, knowing that they craved his approval and affection and attention. And he just used that as a weapon to get them to do what he wanted through their whole lives. And, 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 in, a weird, and in a weird way, it kept happening to them even after he was dead. <laughs> and I can't imagine anybody looking at that story and saying, oh, well, that's the message of that is if you want to be successful, you got to be ruthless. Uh, you know, no, that's not being celebrated. Um, I, you know, I think that would be a better critique of how TV was maybe 10 years ago when uh, when we had shows or 15 years ago um, or 25 years ago when we had shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, uh, where we had these white male protagonists who, who were, um, you know, who, who were outlaws and paid a price for it, but were still kind of celebrated by the shows that they starred in. Um, one thing I think people get confused is like when the camera spends a lot of time with a character, it humanizes the character. And so I think a lot of times people confuse humanizing a character with celebrating a character. And those are two different things. The camera spends a lot of time with Jeffrey Dahmer in um, the Netflix limited series about Jeffrey Dahmer. It's not celebrating what he did, but it does humanize him and try to make you understand how a living, breathing person could have done such horrific things. And, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes it does cross the line into celebrating or um, elevating people that you'd rather not see celebrated or elevated. But, you know, we have to understand that humans are capable of a lot of things. And we have to accept that humans are capable of a lot of awful things. And I think that's 
you know, what these big shows like Beef and 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 The Bear and Succession have in common is that there are there there are people who are trying to reach towards a better life, uh, and not a better life in terms of more money or success, but they're trying to reach towards a more fulfilling life. And 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 they're having to reach through a lot of dysfunction and weirdness to get there. And seeing them fall short and seeing how they fall short is where the the real uh, meat of the story lies. And, you know, I don't think Catherine is alone in craving um, positivity. Look at the popularity of Ted Lasso. <laughs> well, Ted Lasso, I mean, the reason why Ted Lasso stuck, st stood out was because its message was that, you know, niceness is the is the key and that, um, you know, you can be in competitive situations, but you don't have to let that turn you into a jerk. Um, and and, you know, I love that message of the show. I do think um, that that's a tough message to sell in today's moment. And, and I think people are a bit more cynical now. And I think people are up against the wall in a lot of ways. And in the message of, hey, you know, being nice leads to fulfillment, um, you know, can sound a little Pollyanna-ish or naive. And, 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 and I'm not saying that's why Ted Lasso didn't do so well. I think the quality of the show did a little bit in its final season. And that's mm. why I didn't do as well at, at, at the Emmys. And there was also a sense that the bear was the hot new thing and Ted Lasso was, right. you know, something that had been around for a while. And if it, if it had been around for a while and it dipped in quality and there's this great new thing out there, you know, the Emmy voters kind of went with the hot new thing. And I don't think we can talk about warmth and positivity without talking about Abbott Elementary. Sure. And humanity as yeah. well, you know. Yeah, Abbott Elementary is a wonderful show. And what I love about that show is that it's so authentic. Um, my mother and my stepfather were both school teachers for a long time. Um, I teach myself at Duke University and Indiana University. And so, you know, some things are sort of universal about what teachers go through. But, you know, teachers in an urban school and an urban elementary school in Philly, you know, um, they they really bring the real in terms of what they're facing and what's so absurd about, um, you know, that situation how you can have somebody who's principal of the school who clearly isn't qualified and clearly isn't focused on even doing their job, <laughs> you know, and you have this, this young, optimistic, you know, aspirational person come in and just constantly get beat down by all the uh, structural nonsense and the absurdism of the situations they're in, the lack of resources and the people they're forced to get money from and approval from. Uh, it's, it's just a really great, show in all those levels and then the performances are so amazing and to have somebody like Quinta Brunson who had had intention getting jobs and other shows but then comes up with this thing based on her mother's um, life as a teacher that is just so such a breath of fresh air especially for network television um, you know I, I feel like Abbott Elementary kind of had its year at the Emmys the year before the Emmys before uh, but uh, Quinta still won, uh, which was amazing. And, um, and and to have Black women win as Best Comedic Actress and Best Supporting Actress was also um, historic. And so um, that show continues to break boundaries and continues to do great work and continues to be the one area where um, broadcast television shows can actually win major awards. So, um, you know, it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. We are speaking with Eric Deggins of NPR, TV critic, media analyst. What are your thoughts? Give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. If you're quick, you can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. We'll be right back. Listener support brings us Maine Calling with help from Midcoast Senior College, based in Brunswick, offering online and in-person courses for intellectually curious seniors, midcoastseniorcollege.org, and by Tri-County Federal Credit Union, committed to local, helping local, in financial services and the community. Learn more at tcfucu.com.
I'm Robin Young. With Hollywood Awards season well underway, next up, the Oscar nominations. We'll talk about the front runners, including two of them, Barbenheimer, with entertainment reporter John Horn next time, Here and Now. Stay with us, Here and Now, upcoming shortly at 12 noon today, here on Maine Public Radio. Maine Public is pleased to be a media sponsor of the Penobscot Theatre Company's production of Constellations, January 25th through February 11th at the Bangor Opera House. Constellations is a love story that delves into the infinite possibilities of relationships and raises questions about the difference between choice and destiny. Maine Public members are eligible for 15% off tickets for Constellations. For details, please visit mainepublic.org and click on Community. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic on what is worth watching. And we'll talk about media more broadly as well. Join our conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or find us on social media. Eric, we're having this conversation on a day that many of our listeners across the border in New Hampshire are voting it's New Hampshire primary day. And um, so many people are so discouraged with the state of politics um, in America right now. And I want to ask you sort of a big question. So uh, take a big breath. How much is television? How much is the media responsible for where we are? Uh, uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess um, I think people I think people do two things. I think they overestimate the impact that media can have in a lot of situations. And I think they underestimate the impact media can have in other situations. So um, what I would say is, is is media to blame for the fact that the GOP has rallied around Donald Trump and seems and GOP voters seem uh, determined to make him the nominee? Um, no, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think the, I don't think you can blame the media for that. Um, in, unless you want to extend that to blaming um, outlets like Fox News, which have been propagandizing Republican voters for decades, um, then then you could you could blame that media. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think you know the news media has has struggled to figure out how its um, traditional way of covering news can be adapted to fit this modern environment that is filled with misinformation and disinformation, and that is filled with media outlets that have partisan agendas um, that they will either partially admit or not admit at all. And, you know, how do you sort through all that? And how do you sort, you know, I mean, reporting on politics, just in general, is very challenging. But then to try to report on it in an environment where people are locked in these information bubbles and um, and it's hard to get them to trust messaging that challenges what they want to believe. Um, that is something, you know, the, I, I was on a journalism panel months ago um, and the point that I was trying to make that nobody seemed to be interested in was, you know, what frightens me is that people are not believing when you go out, when the New York Times or or um, National Public Radio goes out, spends months, works really hard, and de- and develops a fair but incisive story about somebody like Donald Trump, and it kind of hits the world, there's a bunch of people who are just like, nope, I don't believe that. <laughs> and uh, you know what? What do you what do you do? when the percentage of people who react like that climbs to 30%, climbs to 40%, climbs to 45%, you know, at some point that becomes a crisis for mainstream news organizations that we are not equipped to handle and we have not begun to even discuss. And, um, you know, I think if you were to go back to Nixon's time and to tell people back then, yeah, you know, the Republican candidate for president is going to be facing 91 felony counts in court. And uh, he will have had to pay a $24 million settlement before he even took office when he was elected the first time. Um, He will have been found civilly liable in a court for sexually assaulting a woman um, and defaming her when she said that it happened and he denied it. Um, And, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that he paid off a porn star to not talk about an affair they had 10 days after his youngest child was born. 
Uh, and oh, by the way, he controls the Republican Party and he's probably going to be nominated for president in 2024. They would not believe that. They, they, they could not believe that a politician would survive that much uh, and, and, and still be in position to get elected president again. And, and I don't think you can blame the media solely for that. That is choices that people are making. Um, and, and why are they making those choices? And, and what are the other institutions that are enabling them to make that choice? And, you know, we're going to we have a lot of soul searching to do uh, in the run up to this next election. And I hope people actually do it. Um, you know, related to this conversation and also hearkening back to what we were talking about before with appointment television, um, uh, televised debates used to be a really big deal. Um, and now we've seen, you know, of course, Donald Trump not participating in the Republican um, you know, the, the debates leading up to this point in the primary. We're looking forward to the general election. There's some question about whether there will be debates, who would participate. Here in Maine, we've had candidates opt out of debates in recent years. Um, what are your thoughts, Eric, on the importance, the role of televised debates between candidates? Well, you know, um, unfortunately, the front runner for the Republican nomination didn't have to appear in a debate because it was obvious that Republican voters were going to support his candidacy. Um, and he didn't, he, despite the fact that he had tons of challengers and he didn't he didn't have to do it. I mean, you know, no candidate would would will, would do a debate if they don't have to do it, uh, if there is in some sense that they would lose votes if they indicated that they weren't willing to face their challengers and have an open, honest debate. And so, um, you know, the system did what it could do and held debates with the people who were willing to debate. But all that wound up doing was sort of convincing people, well, what's the point of this debate? None of these people seem, it, it doesn't seem possible that any of these people are actually going to be nominated uh, to, to be uh, the GOP nominee for, for president. So why are we paying attention to these debates? So in a weird way, those debates wound up devaluing the idea of debates because um, the person who was the likely nominee did not have to take part. And so he did not take part. And I think that's the problem with creating a situation where people reflexively support a nominee regardless of what they do. Um, so you have you have districts that are gerrymandered to the point where people from one party or another know that they're probably going to get elected if they don't do anything. Uh, so they don't participate in, in debates and they don't talk to the press. Um, or you have a candidate like Trump who has so much support inside the party and doesn't pay a price for blowing off debates. Um, you know, I mean, of, of course, it would be nice if the front runner actually recognized that they had sort of a responsibility to the public to do these debates. But from Trump's point of view, it was all he could do was lose. All he could do was was have a bad moment and be shown up by one of his challengers and then have that person take some of his support. So if supporters are not going to make him pay a price for not debating, he's not going to debate. And so, again, it all comes back to us. It comes back to us as voters. Um, do we pressure these politicians to show up and talk to us and to show up and talk to their challengers? Or do we provide such unyielding support that they can skate to victory and not, and barely bother to talk to us except in extremely managed rally conditions where they can say whatever they want? It's, it's, it's kind of up to us to make that decision. An email here from Chris. Two of my favorite shows lately are Slow Horses and the latest season of Fargo. Love to hear Eric's thoughts. And Chris, I'm with you, especially Slow Horses. Yeah, um, I love both of the shows. I got the wonderful opportunity to actually interview Gary Oldman for uh, another show, uh, KCRW's The Business, that ran on their air a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, Slow Horses is this British um, uh, program about uh, this department of people inside the British intelligence. It's the place where you get sent when you make a mistake. And so it's considered to be uh, the place where all the misfits land and all the people who didn't quite work out. And uh, they call it Slough House uh, inside um, the British intelligence uh, establishment. Uh, and, and But they're called the Slow Horses, sort of colloquially. And so that's where the title of the, of, the, of the TV show comes from. It's based on a series of books. 
And Gary Oldman is playing this character. He's he's a burnout intelligence agent who's very cynical about the whole um, process, but also underneath it all is very loyal to um, the country and understands that intelligence is necessary to safeguard the country. So he's always kind of manipulating the system and manipulating his little group of misfits to try and, and, and ultimately win the day, uh, even though he's incredibly cynical about the process and he feels like the process eats people alive. And if it was up to him, he would go to everyone in his department and tell them to quit the intelligence service, which he's always doing in a jokey, Oh, and firing not in a jokey them too. way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's 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 all he's very hard on them on the surface, and he's always telling them to quit. But the but the reason he's doing that is because he feels like uh, being an intelligence officer has kind of ruined his life, and and really he doesn't want them to get killed doing this thing. Uh, but but he you know he's not you know he's too repressed to actually tell them that. So so it's just a wonderful um, series where you can see all of this stuff. This is all subtext. that you can kind of pick up and how the characters bounce off each other. But uh, on the surface, there's a lot of uh, funny moments. There's a lot of absurdist moments, but it's also very dramatic. And Kristen Tom Scott Thomas is great Yeah. in it too. Um, just a lot of really great performances from British actors uh, and, uh, and, and a wonderful way. It's not only subverting the spy genre, it's subverting other comedies that subvert the spy genre. So, so you, you know, you're not just seeing a satire of James Bond, you're seeing a satire of Get Smart. You're seeing a satire of, um, uh, of Austin Powers. So it's, it really is, um, or, or, or a satire of um, a It's more very accurate, smart. Yeah. a satire Yeah. of, um, of um, George Smiley and, 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 uh, and, and Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy and all those novels. I'm going to try to squeeze in a caller. Tim, we're real short on time. So if you could be quick, that'd be great. Sure, thank you. Hi, Eric. First, uh, go Hoosiers. Uh, second, All right. I Woo. was sort of wondering... Alum of Indiana University. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Uh, I'm wondering sort of what place some of these older shows, and I'm thinking sort of specifically of 30 Rock, uh, where they, they come in. You know, I, I rewatched it recently, and there's some things that, watching it now, uh, are kind of cringeworthy. You know, it's progressive in some ways, but there are some other elements there that kind of make me a little uncomfortable. And, you know, where do you think those, those shows fit? Should we continue watching them, or should we kind of cast them aside? What, how, how should we handle those? Yeah, you know, the thing that's interesting about 30 Rock is that when the show was airing, there were some critics who said, hey, there's some problematic stuff going on here. But uh, but people love Tina Fey and they love the idea of 30 Rock being this revolutionary show. So uh, so it was a little harder to get people to pay attention to those criticisms. Now people look back and they see, you know, in some ways how the show talks about race, in some ways how the show talks about other issues Uh, is, is 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 feels a little problematic. I mean, I feel like it's it, it's it's like with any show that was created of its time, you need to be aware of where those limitations are. And as a viewer, and you know, it's hard sometimes. But like, um, my my youngest is uh, is nineteen, and you know, sometimes we watch TV together. And we'll watch the show called The Closer. Um, they feature Kira Sedgwick as a um, um, as a police officer and an, an expert interrogator who would solve all these crimes. Uh, the show was wonderful in a lot of ways, but it was. Oh, gosh, we've got a toot. I was hoping Eric could wrap up his thought. That was Eric Deggins from NPR. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Public Radio.